really understand your monkey mind. And I'm Rosalind Palmer, your host, and today I'm absolutely delighted to be joined by Robin Farmer Farmian. I met Robin at AFEST, Awesomeness Fest, and the lovely thing about AFEST is not only are there world leading speakers on the stage, but they are also incredibly humble. So when it comes to things like lunchtime, they go and mingle with lesser mortals such as myself. And I was very, very fortunate, great synchronicity, to find myself seated next to Robin on, I think, the first or second day. And the conversation we had was worth the price of my entire ticket and trip to that event alone. So I've navigated many ups and downs in my life and also health issues. But Robin, you have overcome so much from an early misdiagnosis and effectively become CEO of your own health journey. What I'm interested in is A, tell us about that, but B, what was your mindset? Because I'm sure you didn't have a blueprint for navigating that at an early age when you were done with dis-ease and in health and you decided to take control yourself. How did that happen for you? Well, uh, so a little background, I've had 43 hospitalizations, six major surgeries and three organs removed. And that was, most of those happened when I was a teenager. And by the time I was 26, this was seven years after I'd had my entire large intestine surgically removed, my doctors were telling me I was cured, but I wasn't at the time and I was in extreme pain. So I became essentially a shut-in for about two years. It was the most I could do on a given day would be maybe go to the grocery store and that would like lay me flat for a week. And so I said, okay, this is not a life. And I was in such extreme pain that I went back to my doctors and I said, okay, that's it, I'm done. We need to do something else. These, I need to be off this medication. They aren't working, there's something else wrong. And at the time I was on very high dose opioids, uh, 80 milligrams a day of methadone, which is enough to like take down a horse. And the doctor said, well, okay, next step could be to surgically implant a morphine pump into your spine. Wait a second, no, 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 I was 26 years old. I was essentially a shut-in. I couldn't function. It's like, no, absolutely not. And I went home that night and I fired my entire healthcare team. And so what really made that happen was I felt like I hit rock bottom. They were essentially telling me the rest of my life was gonna be as a shut-in on morphine being pumped into my spine. I was like, no, 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 no. So I dropped my own methadone dose by 40% and went through pretty severe opioid withdrawal by myself for about a week, where you just kind of crawl across the floor to be able to get like lemonade and salt, because that's all you can eat at, you know, when you're coming off of something like methadone. And um, it was pretty hard, but I got through it. I ended up finding a whole new healthcare team, uh, new doctors, new pain doctors, everything. I got diagnosed correctly with Crohn's disease, put on an IV medication called Remicade, and within 24 hours of that first dose, I went into remission. But how did you have the faith in yourself? Because you would be flying in the face of everybody telling you you were wrong, you were probably gonna be worse off, you know, they were doing the best they could for you. Who were you to know better than them? How did you have that faith in yourself at that time? So it's two things. First of all, it was hitting rock bottom. It's like that was that was my my rock bottom moment. Like if you were an alcoholic and you found yourself asleep in the gutter, right? Like my, that might be your rock bottom moment. For me, it was my doctors telling me, you know, 
it's not getting better, you know, we'll just progress on your pain management. And essentially, it wasn't palliative care, but it felt like that. And that combined with a very strong upbringing. My mom was a physician, and she was one of three women in her, her entire medical school in 1964. Right, and um, all the women in my family are very similar to that. My grandmother, most of them went to Wellesley College, right? Like, and um, we were just brought up to be strong women. And so I reached down into myself and, and really the stuff my mom taught me. Yeah, it was that steel, that upbringing, that what you saw. You live what you learn, you learn what you live. So that was yeah. part of you. But when you were 26, were you in pharma yourself? I mean, what were you doing? What were you trained as at that time? So I hadn't worked. I had been doing some volunteer work at that point, but I got out of college and I still continued taking a bunch of classes because I'm, I, I love I love school and I love learning things. Uh, but yeah, no, I wasn't working at the time. And try not to do the math, but this was really before the internet took off in terms of, uh, you know, being able to work remotely or anything like that. I mean, most jobs were still office-based jobs. And so, no, I, I was just a shut-in. Mm. And then with this steel that came from your upbringing, with you hitting rock bottom so there was nowhere else to go, you went forward clearly at that point and you went into this remission. How did that then lead to the multi-award winning speaker who Farmer would have in at the drop of a hat now? How did that segue from that 26-year-old who really had nowhere else to go to the woman who's sitting in front of me today? What were some of the key mindset or turning points along that route? So I've always been very intense to begin with. Like I was a tri-varsity athlete even when I was sick, including at 88 pounds, which is about what I weigh still today. In high school, I played six years competitive varsity ice hockey. And including when I was in, the, in and out of the hospital and having surgeries, I was playing ice hockey for Boston University. And so I am a pretty intense person. And so at the age of 26, up until then, I was still listening to my physicians as if they were the authority figures. I was always brought up with a very healthy attitude towards authority figures. And um, once I decided, hey, no, I'm the boss, not them, that changed my outlook so much that I went back to being normal, intense Robin. <laughs> and so once I felt good enough and I didn't have all that extreme pain and I wasn't on all the medications that were making me like not think straight, uh, I went back into, you know, working two or three jobs at once, working 18-hour days. I mean, that's that's very typical what I would do in, in high school and college. And so I just went all in. And I started in the world of genetic testing. I uh, worked at the very first consumer-facing genetic testing company. And I wrote the algorithms that led from the SNPs, which are just the, essentially the scientific reading of your genes, to the client reports and all the preventive medicine aspects. And then my, my career just grew from there. Everything led to everything else. I went into EMRs, I went into telemedicine, I co-founded a, a giant medical conference, and then I started co-founding a bunch of other companies like Organ Preservation Alliance on tissue engineering and cryopreservation. And um, finally, when I was, I was in Silicon Valley, and this was maybe six, seven years ago, and in the middle of me being intense Robin and working you know, as hard, if not harder than most of the company, I started getting really pushed down by the men. And this happens you know, everywhere, but in Silicon Valley, where it's very you know, tech-dominated, male-dominated, uh, I started getting sabotaged at work. 
My work was stolen. I even got deleted multiple times off of the company website as if I didn't even exist, which was insane. I'm like, how does anyone have that power? And I would, I would call, you know, ping the CEO and I'd say, hey, that guy who's been pushing me down that you are well aware of deleted my name from the website again. Here it is. Can you please get me reinstated? And the CEO had to constantly get my name be put back up onto the website and nothing happened to the men who were taking it down. Like that is such a blatant pushing down someone to make it seem like they don't even work at the company. So I decided, all right, well, HR is not helping. The CEO knew everything and would look the other way saying, ah, no big deal. I said, okay, well, I've got to change the game. Instead of trying to do through legal channels or HR, I'm going to become a professional speaker and author, and I'm going to get out there in the front and then no one can push me down. That will be my safety net. No one can delete me off of emails or pull me off a website if I'm one of the most famous people on that website. And that's what I did. I went home that weekend and I created a five-year project plan for myself on how to become a professional speaker and author. And it worked better than my wildest dreams. I mean, it was so incredibly successful that the day my first book published in 2015, uh, The Patient as CEO, and it talks about my backstory, but also the technology that impacts healthcare, it was like flipping a light switch on sexual harassment and gender discrimination. I went from being called the, the personal assistant or secretary to being called Dr. Farman Farmian, despite the fact that I've never been to medical school. You were held in that degree of um, esteem. But how did you overcome, apart from the fighting spirit to I'm going to show you, how did you overcome that sidelining? And I mean, Because you, you haven't lost any of your femininity. I love that about you. If you read, I imagine, if you did a CB for you and took your name off it and any photos of it, there would be people probably even today who would assume you are a man because yep. you work in those industries. You work in biotech, in healthcare, in longevity, in augmented reality, which to my mind often seem to be quite male areas. How did you retain your sense of self, your sense of femininity and not become angry about it? So I've had a lot of trauma in my life. And it started, of course, when I was a teenager, but then I've also had other tra traumatic events happen to me. And you find that people react in one of two ways a lot of the time to trauma. They either allow it to destroy their life and they wallow in depression and um, anger or thoughts of retribution and things like that, or they use it to make themselves stronger. I chose number two. Yeah, I've got this poem I always share with clients strong trees do not grow with ease the stronger the wind the stronger the trees and I, I love that poem because a, a strong tree is grown through adversity you know the more the wind is there the more it comes up um, another thing I love to share is a principle isn't a principle until it costs you money have you had to walk away on principle Oh my, yes, many times, many times. Um, I've walked away from trying to get, so I've had two different men who I were managing some of their speaking engagements and some of their conference stuff. And both of them um, had very large bills outstanding with me, $25,000 or more. And I ended up just walking away. They were so narcissistic and they were so hard to fight with, like in terms of getting 
paid um, that finally I just was like, they've got to live with themselves. And then I just did it again three weeks ago. So normally I'm, I'm a huge believer in, in raising as many women up as possible. And so I was writing a book with another woman who is about 20 years behind me in my career. Like she's never had a paid speaking engagement. She's not signed up in any bureau. Like this is a world she wants to be in, but she hasn't broken into yet. And so, okay, I said, all right, let's write, you know, we can write a short book together, 10,000 words, put our names on it, and that will lift her up more than anything else she could possibly do. And she missed every single deadline. Not only did she miss every deadline, but like there would be a deadline maybe three or four weeks ago and she'd agree to it and then she'd ignore it and pretend it didn't even exist and three weeks would go by. And I gave her warnings for two weeks in a row and I said, this is what I agreed to. Uh, you keep writing things, but not editing. So you're doing the fun things, but not the hard work. I go, you've got to move forward. And finally, I just called her for the third time Third, the third week in a row, asking her if she had things like ADD and why she wasn't respecting like the our, our agreement. And she said, I guess we should have talked about things like deadlines beforehand. I just don't use them. Wow. That's a kind of an interesting concept. Um... Right. I was like, I've never heard of someone. Do you think for her, I'm wearing my therapist hat now, a lot of people, women and men, but women particularly, they have a fear of success and they will self-sabotage and they don't even realise they're doing it. Do you maybe recognise that? And if you've ever recognised that in yourself, how have you pushed through? I was thinking that might be something. That's why I gave her three weeks versus one. I'm usually pretty strict and, uh, you know, because I, I run companies. I've been CEO of companies. I've been president, executive director or chair for a lot of conferences. So the buck stops with me. Right. So I need to be responsible and I need to cut things off when they're a problem early. And I gave her an extra few weeks because I was thinking that I'm like, maybe she's just nervous. And then after a few conversations with her, uh, I realized, no, that she was just narcissistic. Right. And so it wasn't going to happen. Wasn't going to happen no matter what I realized. And I actually asked her that. I go, I don't know your, your age exactly. I go, but um, early, you know, teenagers and, and early 20 somethings, they're very narcissistic in general. That's just the way their brain works. It's a neural thing when you're a child and you typically grow out of that in your mid 20s and you know, become much more empathetic to the rest of the world. I go, make sure you're not one of the people who continues to be narcissistic throughout your adult, adult life. And that's your kind of parting advice to her now. When you're on the board of big companies, how do you turn up with your mindset? Let's say, for example, you're moving into a new area, an area you haven't worked in before, maybe. And I know you love to learn, so I'm sure it's really exciting. But to navigate that with the kind of rules that you would expect from somebody else to you, how do you impose those on yourself, Robin? In terms of uh, like anything that I would hold other people accountable towards? Oh, I lead by example 100% of the time. Uh, I make sure I am at every meeting early, right? Like uh, I come prepared to everything I do. I make sure I meet deadlines days early. Uh, when, for example, if a keynote needs their slide deck in two weeks early, I give it in three weeks early, 
right? I always exceed expectations. And I've heard my teams notice that, right? Like I would show up to running a conference and people were terrified to mess up in front of me because I set the standards so high with my own behavior. And when you were writing your book and you hadn't written a book before, what were you hoping to achieve? I knew that would change the game. I knew it back then. So I have a BS in hospitality management, which means I know every aspect of running anything in the service industry from the finance to the marketing, to the economics, to the operations. And so I understand the power of marketing a book and why that's an excuse to interview you or why that actually even takes the place and in some cases is better than getting letters after your name in terms of, of a university degree. In fact, I coach a lot of people one-on-one. -on -one. Um, I do that you know, on the side, I love, I love coaching people. And one of the people I've been talking to a lot uh, wanted to go back to school to get more degrees. And like, why would you go and get an MBA? Spend six months writing a book. That will have higher ROI in terms of what he wanted to do for his career than getting an MBA. Yeah, people, they get caught up in the study. I mean, it's like, I I also see the course junkies. I mean, you and I did meet at um, you know, a very high profile course, but I see the people who just go from one to one to one to one. And they, they constantly, if I learn some more, I will be better, but you've got to start applying it. And of course, not only have you applied yours to books, but the speaking circuit. Now you're a phenomenally in-demand speaker. How did you get into that area, Robin? Or certainly a paid speaker, a remunerated speaker. So I sat down and I created that project plan. Fortunately, at the time, I was already running conferences and managing some professional speakers. So I really had been living inside of that world. I just hadn't been the one on stage. And so I really understood what, how it worked. And um, when you break it down, it's really only things like corporations and associations that pay for speakers. And um, once I realized that, then I created content that would play well to those particular types of clients, right? So I, I really kind of mapped it out, thought about my client or my customer before taking those first steps. Oh, I love that. It's uh kind of retro engineering, I think they call it, or retrograde. Yeah, yep. reverse engineering. I actually talk about that a lot in my, uh, my second book, The Thought Leader Formula. Reverse engineer everything. Figure out what you want to do, get that goal, and then figure out the steps that you need to take to lead to it. And as a thought leader, what would be your top maybe three takeaways to somebody who is really aiming to be in that place soon? So first takeaway is be intentional. Do not just sit there and just start, oh, I'm just going to start recording videos and throwing them up on different social media sites. That's not going to do anything but maybe get you a full few followers, but it's the followers you, um, there's very specific followers you care about because it's understanding your overall goal. Why are you a thought leader? Because being a thought leader in and of itself does not make money. Being a professional speaker obviously does, but that is a very specific part of being a thought leader. And so what are you, why are you doing it? Are you driving business goals? Do you want a promotion at work? Do you, do you want want to drive more sales to your company like what is the reason for being a thought leader because that will help define your customer avatars and once you know who your customer is you know where they live online so instead of just throwing up videos you'd be like okay well my customer is other ceos of technology companies 
I find out where they live, right? They read things like TechCrunch, right? And so if I want to get in front of their eyes, I have to get myself into something like TechCrunch. Yeah, it's, well, you know, my background is PR and marketing. So for me, that is good common sense. Uh, I never fail to be amazed when people seem to ask those questions, but we all can be guilty of it. A few years ago, I had a coach and she said that somebody had said to her, oh, I see Rosalind Palmer all over social media. What does she do? And I thought, oh, that's interesting. That's really interesting. So I'm, I'm, I'm quite visible, but I'm not clearly getting that message across about how I help people, what I do, what my core messaging was. So I, you know, I learned a lesson. It was quite painful at the time, but I learned it. What have been some of the lessons that maybe painfully or otherwise you've learned through your career? I have learned, oh, one of the biggest ones, and this changed the game for me. And this is in part what led to the professional speaking um, on a big, big level is I watched Adam Grant give his talk live at uh, the Nantucket Project. And he is a scientist who talks about givers and takers, givers, takers, and matchers. All, all of us are somewhere on that spectrum. And I did not know that. See, I grew up in New Hampshire and my mom was a physician and my dad's an, uh, you know, a patent attorney, very generous people. We grew up on a farm where you left your door unlocked and you fed the neighborhood children and you shared everything. And so very idyllic, you know, small town. And so I just grew up in a world surrounded by givers. I didn't realize there was such a thing as a taker. And I didn't realize there was such a thing as a matcher. And once I saw that talk, it was, it was actually pretty, um, it was so impactful. I was live and I was watching the way Adam was setting this up on stage and he'd say, well, you know, givers are the mo uh, least successful types of people in business. My heart broke and I, I like sunk to my stomach and I, I started having this huge debate in my head during a live talk where I'm like, you know what? I don't care, I'm going to you know, break the mold. I'm gonna to continue to be a giver and I'm still going to be the most successful in business. That's it, I'm just gonna overcome that. And then by the end of the talk, Adam said, oh, by the way, you know how I told you that givers are the least successful in business? Well, it turns out they're also the most successful in business. And the difference between the givers who are successful and the ones who aren't successful are the ones who aren't don't know how to say no. So they end up focusing on just everybody else's stuff and not on theirs ever. And so the ones who know how to manage that and say yes sometimes and no other times are the ones who are most successful. And I can't tell you the relief I felt. Like I have never gone through an emotional roller coaster before during a 20 minute talk. <laughs> There's a chapter in my book about the power of no. And sometimes I have to really remind myself about it. Somebody approached me yesterday with something that sounds really interesting. And that part of me is like, oh, this sounds so interesting. And then I sent a very graceful no back, you know, maybe another time, but it's certainly a no for now. And they were fine with it. And I find it just feels very empowering and liberating to be able to do that. When have been some times when maybe you've not got it right? You've learned the hard way. Oh, I mean, there's, I fall down more than most people try. Right, like I fail on things all the time. And I, I think to myself, okay, if you're not failing, then you're not taking big enough risks. 
And so like I started a new company again last year. I started five now. And this one was, it turned, it morphed into a hardware company. We started as a software company. I was CEO. And uh, we turned, it turned out that we really needed to build hardware because there wasn't hardware on the market yet in the world of augmented reality that would be adequate for what we were envisioning. And so we worked with nanotechnology and the glasses that we were creating were going to be very, very cool. We filed some IP and then realized a few months in, um, it was just too early. Nanotechnology industry and the way it manu the manufacturing side of nanotechnology for our purposes at the time is just not commercialized enough. It's been commercialized for six, seven years in terms of, of kind of like what we were looking at with the graphene aspect, but it was just our technology was too early, so we abandoned it. I'm a big sci-fi fan. Um, I love Terminator and all the movies. Is there anything about some of those areas that you go into, nanotechnology, that frighten you? Oh, it's all, there's a lot that's really kind of scary because the thing is, everything that we use for good on all the things we were envisioning, we were um, in the world of nanotechnology and graphene, including some stuff for the military. So uh, my co-founders happen to be ex uh, ex-military guys. And so we were envisioning some products for the military. And I realized, I mean, I've realized this before, but it really hit home that, okay, while we're using this for good, this same technology in the wrong hands can be used to destroy, to kill people, to destroy countries, to destroy economics. Like, I mean, it's, it's, always with technology, the good guys and the bad guys have equal access and usually equal brain power. It's how it's used. And so that, that is terrifying. And how do you sleep at night with that terror? The same way I sleep at night with the thoughts of things like coronavirus or the thought of, you know, a sudden war with another country. It's, it's one of those things where it's such constant factor in your life that you've got to kind of just phase it out, right? Or just block it out and not think about it all the time. Because if you're constantly thinking about things that are way outside of your control, you're gonna drive yourself crazy. So I say, all right, if you're worrying about something, is it something you can do something about? Is it within your control? Or are you just gonna be controlling your emotions? And in that case, you know, bad guys using a technology, it would be just me controlling my own emotions and reaction to it because Nothing I specifically do in this world is going to keep the bad guys from having access to technology. Yeah. Right? It's not a solvable problem. And so the only thing that's solvable is my reaction and my emotions towards that. And how have you got a toolkit of mind hacks that enabled you to do that? So I use quite a few things. Uh, one visualization technique I use, especially in bed, if I'm thinking about the same thing over and over again, and all of us do this, we all lay in bed with our eyes wide awake and, and going over converse, conversations over and over again in our head, right? That happens to 100% of us. Well, it turns out in the world of neuro, your brain is actually being rewarded. Every time you think of that same story, it it's kind of sets up this, this reward pathway in your brain. And so you're making yourself miserable and being rewarded for it. So I turn that story into a visualization of a hamster on a wheel. 
and the hamster is just going around and around on the wheel. And every time it does a full circle, which is one full story, it it's rewarded. And so what I do is I just physically take the hamster in my head off of the wheel and put him into a calm environment, like his little bed with some, you know, favorite food. And that can really just change and stops it. Because not only am I distracting myself, I'm actually having to think about doing something else, but then I take that behavior and I and I put it to rest. And, it's, and that helps me a lot of the time. Yeah, and it's visual, it breaks the pattern. I love the analogy, because I'm always talking about the hamster wheel or the spinning plates, that would be the other one. I'm sure I could do something with that. I love that, and, and that's self-taught. Yes. Yeah. I spent a lot of time in the hospital by myself, right? So when I, most of those 43 hospitalizations happened before the internet. Mm, yeah. <laughs> and so there was nothing but the TV on the wall. And most of the time, you know, I'd be in the emergency room or something and it would just be by myself, maybe with a book. <laughs> and you just have to figure things out. Yeah, I was ill a lot as a child and it was pre, even daytime TV, Robin, but guess what a child who can't do daytime TV does? They read, they write, they create stories, they write poems, they make things up in their head. So I've always had this amazing thirst for literature and storytelling because that was where I had to go. What else in your mind do you do? We talk about the monkey, monkey mind, the chimp mind, and the chimp mind can be that hamster on the wheel or that voice that kind of is there pulling you down how do you silence that so I also have a lot of phrases I use throughout the day so um one thing is that I've just created my living space is perfect for me so I walk around my apartment every day and I make sure I think or say out loud how much I love my apartment every day right just expressing gratitude and I do that for a few different things in my life but secondly I just constantly use these phrases like finish the task or don't be lazy or waste not want not like I literally will say those things in my head or in um out loud and if I drop something waste not want not Robin you know you should be you know utilizing that or if I'm running around and I want to throw my dish in the dish uh into the sink instead of the dishwasher I'm like Robin finish the task finish the task and I'm constantly giving myself those little pep talks throughout the day every single day and it works it's sometimes I forget I should be using my inside voice. <laughs> I can be in the shop and I'll be saying, yes, we've got this. And I suddenly realize I've actually said it out loud. But your list of amazing accolades, I'm looking, the top 50 global thought leader in digital disruption, top 20 global thought leader and influencer on the future of work, top 30 femtech healthcare influencer, Top Influential Entrepreneur of the Year, Top Longevity Influencer. I'm particularly interested in the last one because who wouldn't want to live longer but live longer and live well for longer? What are your thoughts on that, Robin? So I have been what's called a life extensionist for 20 years. I have specifically done things on a daily basis to make sure I am extending my life. And um, it, it was a popular term about until about 10 years ago, just like the quantified selfers before the Fitbit movement, I was a QSer. Um, and so these are just kind of terms that before they became mainstream, they were kind of grassroots movements. 
And so there are a number of things on a, I do on a daily basis that really makes a massive difference in the world of longevity. But in addition, I work in the pharmaceutical world and biotech world on longevity things. So when I worked on tissue engineering and cryopreservation, that was for transplants so that you can switch out your organs, right? Because your organs are aging. And so if you can switch out your heart, um, heart, heart attacks and, and uh, cardio problems are responsible for a significant number of deaths every year. So that kind of thing. I've worked on curing cancer, which again goes back to longevity. I'm an advisor on a company that's a supplement company that, that um, clears out what's called zombie cells or senescent cells, which are the dead cells in your body. So that can reverse aging potentially. And um, so, but the things I do on a daily basis is I have exercised now every single day of my life since I was a teenager, except for that two year period when I was a shut in. And so an hour a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year, no excuses ever. I don't take Christmas off. I don't take my birthday off. If for some reason I cannot seem to get myself to work out, I know that I am so sick that I probably need to be in the ER. That is the only thing that will keep me from the Stairmaster and elliptical. Yeah. So what workouts do you do? So I have my own gym that I, I've owned my own gym for 25 years since college. Don't do the math, <laughs> but uh, I, I just aged myself there, but I always get a two bedroom apartment. So I have a full room for my exercise equipment. Currently I'm doing 20 minutes on the Stairmaster, 30 minutes on the elliptical, and then 15 to 20 minutes of yoga and or band work. Mm-hmm. Every day. Every single day. What else do you go to? tips for longevity what else do you do i've been a vegetarian for 20 years um i think that is actually a big deal uh the third thing i do is sleep so my sleep schedule is very consistent and in fact today i set my alarm for 7 a.m so that i could work out before we, we hung out today and um i woke up at 10 minutes of seven because my body is so in tune and so understanding of its sleep schedule. I make sure I get at least seven hours a night, if not eight and a half, depending on what my body needs. I make sure to not have any negativity in my life. This one I learned about six years ago. I didn't realize until I learned about those takers and things like that, but getting rid of all negative people in your life. I now have zero. Hmm. A lot of friendship divorces then. You just kind of like, you know, stop responding or just slowly go away. A lot of the time when you've got narcissistic or taker people in your um, that are selfish in your life, it's relatively easy to walk away from them because they're so um, self-absorbed. Yeah, no, it's true. Actually, they hardly notice you've gone. Is there anything I haven't asked you that you'd like to ask yourself so that the listeners can hear? Um, I, I would just say... Whatever you want to do, you can do it. I mean, as I mentioned, I'm 88 pounds and five feet tall, and I played six years of varsity ice hockey, right? Um, if you can dream it, you can do it 100%. You just have to be intentional and put the effort and time needed to succeed. And as CEO of your own life, you've given us so many amazing tips, but is there one last takeaway for somebody listening Again, a lot of the people listening are going to be already high-functioning CEOs, but maybe they haven't really got that life-work balance or that joy or the ability to switch that hamster wheel off in their head off, which they've already got that fantastic tip. But anything else that they could take home? 
make sure your world works like an ecosystem. And so um, I talk about this a lot in terms of think about your overall goal. So for instance, in my world, my overall goal is to impact 100 million patients worldwide. Right. And then I figured out how do I do that? Oh, I work as both a professional speaker, but also I work on pharmaceutical med device and health IT. And so that helps dictate what companies I say yes to. That dictates what what talks I say yes to. That dictates what content I put out there. Right. By understanding my goals and how the 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 tools I need to leverage um, in order to achieve those goals has created an entire ecosystem. So if it's not in the ecosystem of your goals and your tools, then you should be saying no. Excellent. Well, I'm glad that you said yes to this incredible, incredible interview. And I'm sure I could talk to you for a day. Um, if people want to find out more, you have many talks. So you have you got TED Talks? Where would they find you, Robin? So I am the only Robin Farman Farmian in the entire universe. <laughs> and so I'm very easy to find. I'm on LinkedIn. My website is robinff.com. I'm on Facebook, Twitter. You can find me on any of the platforms. And your amazing books as well. Well, it's been an absolute honor. Um, synchronicity led me to sit next to you at that, that lunch all those years ago. I was fascinated then. I'm fascinated now. I'm sure we will have you back again because there's so much wisdom that you can share. Thank you. Bless you. And it's been an absolute pleasure having you on the show. Thank you so much.